My understanding is that this is the first affordable housing funding that the county ha has ever uh, asked or put into place. Whatever they estimate in good faith that they will raise, let's say $5 million a year or whatever it ends up being, anything over than that, they actually have to return to nicotine product distributors and what Prop I is doing is essentially saying, what if we ask the voters, you know, if we can just keep any additional money raised by these taxes and not have to ask about retaining that money for the purpose that we already told you and we all agreed we yeah. should do. Buying up all this land and preserving it has greatly increased property value. So why aren't we doing any property tax for this? I don't think there's yeah. a single amount of open space that's directly funded by property tax. I think yeah. it's a very fair question. Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Ogren, and for episode 47, I spoke with Eric Budd, who is a political activist and organizer who has been involved in various issues such as occupancy reform, even your elections, and advocacy for cycling. He is also involved in various organizations including Boulder Progressives, Better Boulder, Boulder Housing Coalition, and Community Cycles, among others. In 2016, Eric started writing an annual voter's guide that he distributes widely around the city to help inform voters and promote his progressive values. These guides are rich with background information, links to relevant resources, and detailed commentary about the whys and whats of the various items on the ballot. We met at Park East Park and talked about the joys of mail-in voting, why Eric started his voter's guide, and then discussed the seven ballot measures that City of Boulder voters will see on their ballots. Two state measures, two county measures, and three city measures. We had ambitions to discuss the candidates, too, but we ran out of time. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the 2023 ballot measures with Eric Budd. Welcome to Sharing Boulder. Thanks for uh, making time today to be on the podcast. Well, thank you, Philip. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, great to have you. Uh, maybe just yeah, take a minute to just introduce yourself and, and <clears throat> what you're all about. Boy, well, I live in Boulder, lived here for almost 15 years, and um, have certainly gotten involved in a lot of local issues. Um, really like this short history for me is just really caring a lot about transportation issues, transportation safety, being able to bike around the city and feel you know, safe and feel like it should be a low stress thing that people should be able to get around their city without a car and turning that into how we use our land because those two things are very connected. If you want these close connected communities, well, you have to build your buildings and your schools and your grocery stores and all that to accommodate that and, and then, Various other things I've worked on, most people know I've been involved with Bedrooms Are For People and passing changes to our discriminatory occupancy limits in Boulder, um, as well as uh, worked on the campaign to move our city elections to even years to get more people voting, um, supporting our, our libraries with the library district. Um, and yeah, involved this year again as they're... <laughs> More city elections and uh, yeah, great. Yes, yeah, so our work is not done. Well, thank you for your service. Um, I, I got to know you through the Bedrooms Are for People campaign. That was a really uh, fun introduction to to local politics. Um, I, I, I you don't do you own a car? You know, I used to own a car. Yeah. So I sold my car in 2014. I think it was. So it's coming up on 10 years without a car and. Okay. Uh, you know, for most of those years, I was just by myself, uh, getting around by myself. And uh -huh. um, now I'm with my partner and our two kids. And we also, as a family, don't have a car and oh, wow. um, get around with a cargo bike or maybe two cargo bikes soon. So nice. it's really great. 
Well, um, Akane and I did an experiment where we had we went without a car for two two plus years, and um, that's a, that's a that's another conversation for another time. But um, yeah, I, I think um, I'd be curious to go through the the guest list to see how many people don't own cars that have been on the podcast. But yeah. um, uh, I I always admire people who uh, who make a lifestyle choice out of that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely requires <laughs> a commitment for sure. Yeah, yeah, but it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Okay, well, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, you also write a, an annual um, voter's guide, and uh, I've really enjoyed reading through those, and I've forwarded them to lots of friends, and thank you for uh, putting those together. I know that takes a lot of work, a thank lot you. of research, and uh, so I wanna thank you for that. And then also, yeah, I just thought it'd be fun to get together and talk about the landscape of what our ballots are gonna look like this year, and talk about what's gonna be on the ballot, and just you know have, have some give and take about about the ballots. So, yeah, I appreciate um, it. I've never, never really um, talked about any of this stuff in audio form. So I hope people appreciate that. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, um, I wanted to start off by just kind of a little comment, little high level commentary about just voting in Colorado in general and like how wonderful it is. Like I used to just dread voting because, you know, you show up at the voters booth, it's a Tuesday night, you're trying to get there before the booth, you know, the polling station closes. And where was that? And well, the last time I remember voting in person was at the Mennonite church near Table Mesa in Broadway. <laughs> and um, I also remember that, that moment feeling like I'm, I'm a fraud because I don't even know what I'm walking into. Like I haven't read any of the ballot measures. I don't know who the candidates are. I'm just walking into a booth and just sort of rolling the dice and going with gut and sign name recognition, you know, it's just a totally sad state of affairs and going on in my brain. Um, you know, and this is, I've been in, I've been in Boulder, voting in Boulder since uh, 2007. So it's not really ancient history that I used to vote like that. Um, and uh, I just really, you know, I know you're not responsible probably for mail-in ballots, but I just want to like do a shout out to whoever put this together. I'm, I'm sure it was really hard work, an uphill battle, and it wasn't probably intuitive to the people who <laughs> were against it, right? That this yeah. would be a good thing. And it's, it's relatively recent in Colorado, you know, as we have transitioned to all mail-in elections like ours, and a few other states in the country have this, like, it's actually not that common. Um, yeah. Washington, Oregon, I think Utah as well, um, but I think those are the only states that really have all mail-in elections where everyone who's registered gets a ballot and it's mailed to their voter address. And I think people, once they really experience this, they sing the praises. And it, it was instituted, my understanding, if I recall correctly, that 2014 was the first all mail-in ballot election in Colorado. And I think you, you really can't find anyone in Colorado who thinks we should do it differently at this point. <laughs> not, not anyone serious. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because um, where I used to dread it and I felt like a fraud, now it's like I, I really get excited about voting. It comes in the mail, I open it up, I, I, you know, I, I, I spend time with it, you know, and then you're, you're there with all your tabs open and you're, re you know, maybe, I, I feel like this year I'll probably be more prepared than I have in previous years, but, and it's a shorter ballot, but um, no, I just, um, I just want to do a shout out to mail-in voting uh, yeah, before, we, before we dive in too, too deep. Um, so I think the goal is to go through the ballot measures. Yeah, yeah. And let's start with the two state ones. Yeah, you and, know, I'd love but, to just talk a little bit about like why I started doing this voter guide. Oh, yeah, you know, of it's course. Like, yeah, please. Um, because like it really parlays off of why you like mail-in voting. And I think the great thing about mail-in voting is you get your ballot gets mailed out roughly three weeks before the election. So, you know, we're all busy people. We yeah. aren't necessarily paying attention to things all the time or all year round. And that period where you have a ballot, you know it's there, you know the election's coming up, and that period allows you to do your research. There are some things, of course, you're gonna see them right away and you know how you'll be voting. And there are some things where you might take a full three weeks to really figure out like, what do I think about this? Or who are these? candidates there won't want to vote for out of a set of them and I need to research all of them. And so it's, you're right, it completely changes the game from walking into a voting booth and maybe not knowing what's on your ballot until you see it for the first time. Yeah. In fact, I often just didn't fill the whole thing out yeah. because like 
BVST school board, like I'm not paying attention to that in 2007 or whenever, right. you know. <laughs> yeah, and so like I think I think there is, um, you know, there is kind of a human habit of a completionist thing of where so, sometimes certain voters get chastised for not voting the whole ballot or younger voters and say that, oh, they're too lazy. It's like, no, that's not it at all. Actually, most people want to vote on things. They take it as a privilege to vote on things, but they just don't necessarily feel like they know enough about um, every individual candidate or every individual uh, measure to make an informed vote. So they will undervote on those things. And that's really a lot of the reason that I started putting the voter guide out there. And the first time I did it was in 2016. I think I was pretty amped up for the election that year because of all the reasons of uh, who was on the ballot, um, Hillary versus Trump, um, as well as like the probably the biggest thing for me was just the way I, I like to approach these issues in general. Like always since I was a kid, I wanted to fully understand everything. Like even when we did group projects and whatnot, I wanted to tear everything apart. I wanted to write it all down and put all my sources out there and then go through it and, and make a decision. You were a good student? That's hard to, no, that's hard to believe. No, no, I wasn't. <laughs> um, it was actually, it was, I was not very good at group work because I didn't want to let other people oh, do I the see. work. Yeah, I wanted okay. to like make sure I understood how everything worked. And you know, obviously that there are pros and cons to that, but um, I've just carried that forward of like, I do want to understand intimately everything that's on the ballot. And I said to myself, well, okay, it takes me hours and hours to do this research and lay it all out. Why not just write it down and share it? And the other thing that really relates to that is that something I learned in college, a um, little, little tangent, um, we, I, I was in a theater class where we had to watch a theater production and we had to write our opinions about it. And one of the things I, I took from this experience was you know, I, I watched a play that was at the local university across the street in Kansas City. And I watched it and I was like, I don't know, it's decent enough. It, it seemed like it was, you know, well done enough. I enjoyed it enough, whatnot. And then um, when I went down and kind of wrote, we had to write a critique of this play. Um, I really realized that there were a lot of things about it that I thought were, you know, not very well done. And things that you just, the added level of thought and detail it requires you to make to not just think about something, but actually write it down, sort of teach it in a way. Teaching yeah. is kind of a learning uh, experience for the teacher as well. And so um, I thought that, well, this is great for me because I can really put down my thoughts in a way that I think is very defensible. And by the time I'm finished writing something, I know that I will have thought through it, every angle of it, and I need to be accountable to whoever I'm writing to. And so all of these things together, a lot of it came from my own self-interest and I realized, well, I've, I've got all of this stuff. I've got my opinions. I think they're well-researched. I include a lot of sources. So why not just start sharing it? Because I know other people would probably like and appreciate the same thing. I, I totally relate to this um, in the sense of this podcast, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like, you know, early on people ask, is anybody listening to this? And it was, for me, it was sort of like, I don't even care. <laughs> like I, get, I get to interview interesting people right. and I'm like trying to get better at it. And it's like, it's good for me. Like I, I really enjoy doing it. So it's sort of like, it's beside the point, you know, obviously I want people to listen and I want to like have a style and a, and a, a format that is inviting and, and engages people in, in the dialogues going on around the city. But um, no, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it starts from a place of like, I want to understand how things work and I, like I want to be part of dialogue and conversation and I want to understand who's who and how things work in the city and but the podcasting felt like you know a, a fit for me that that works for me and um, I think it's super cool that you write up your voter guide yeah uh, thanks and I wonder have you have you read through the 2016 edition recently to to remember what it was like and how do you feel about <laughs> um, it when you go back I think I, I did, it was maybe last year or the year before, I kind of went back to my first one or two. And I, I think the thing that I found a little shocking was uh, some of the ballot questions that maybe I wasn't as interested in, I just wrote maybe a, a couple sentences <laughs> and then moved on. Um, yeah. So I think I really, I try to give like a minimum level of diligence on every, every item on the ballot. And I think that the standard I've kind of raised on that is like, well, linked to all the sources about, you know, the generation of this, this issue that we're voting on and try to just include 
various resources. So at least if I if I am not writing that much on it, I'm sending people to resources of, of other people who have written more extensively yeah. as well. So yeah, so like on your on your ballot in the city of Boulder, when you'll get it, the first thing will be candidates. So there'll be candidates for city council, mayor, school board. I think um, we mentioned just talking about issues first and then maybe we can talk about candidates yeah, sure. later. Yeah, Because yeah. I think um, the heart of what I see the work in my voter guide is about um, issues because, you know, candidates are tricky for various reasons. Um, candidates put things on their websites. They all sound, sound the same. They sound very pleasing and acceptable. Um, but I think issues at some level, you can really analyze what an issue is going to do if it passes, what happens if it fails, um, why does it matter, the context, all these things, I think, which is just a bit more rich. And I think I think it's obviously there's opinion either way, but when you it's say a bit issues, easier. do you mean couched in the, the in the context of how to choose candidates or do you, are you talking about I'm the sorry, ballot, talking about the actual issues. ballot, ballot issues in this yeah, case. Okay, yeah. yeah okay. As in like, it's a bit more concrete. Like yeah. we all vote for candidates hoping that they are going to do these things that we understand for them. But you know, issues just are a bit more like, you know, there's laws Are we going to keep this tax or get rid of it? Yeah. You know, I mean, like, taxing uh, and financial is kind of the biggest one of big like, part of it. they're pretty clear um, effects from things being passed usually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are, on the ballot, I've got my, my notes here. If you're voting in the city of Boulder again, there will be seven issues on the ballot this year. There will be two statewide issues, there will be two county issues, and three city issues. And I think, as you mentioned, compared to years past, this definitely is a shorter ballot, fewer items on it, um, and maybe ones that are less complicated, at least in general. Uh, we can kind of talk about the particulars, but overall, most people know that even years tend to have more ballot issues and more things to vote on. And I'm a little bit thankful that this year is uh, <laughs> a little bit lighter <laughs> because I think when I did my voter guide for 2022, it took me, I don't know, 15 to 18 hours total to put everything together, link it out, put in the graphics and send it out. And um, I haven't finished writing everything up yet at this point for this year, but um, you're, you're kind of read up substantially on yeah. less than that. <laughs> yeah. So the actual the first issue on the uh, on the ballot this year is um, Proposition HH, which some people may have heard out about already. It's been pretty well publicized. First of all, I, I try not to make assumptions about anyone. And that's yeah. like one of the things I think is really important in doing a voter guide is that providing the context, providing kind of all the information that's relevant. And I think like some people know a lot about this and some people are again, seeing it for the first time. But essentially this issue Prop HH is, it's about a number of things, but I think that the main things it's about are property taxes, um, largely as it relates to increases in home valuations and how that's greatly increased taxes on those homes and businesses. Um, as well as um, some other features about this measure that I think are really helpful policies that are not directly related to property taxes, but directly related to the state of Colorado budget. And that really involves um, how we fund our schools, how we, how we fund our cities, our water districts, our, our fire protection, local governments, because these all have um, relationships with the state property tax. Um, Many people may know that um, the city of Boulder funds a lot of their budget from sales tax, um, but a lot of counties and part of the city budgets are reliant on property tax. So yeah. changing you know, the rates or, or how things are set at the state level does have an impact on local governments. Um, and there's also other pieces in here like around um, funding for um, rental assistance for, for people. It's, it's a pretty small part of the bill, but I also, you know, at least notable. And also things that just don't necessarily show up in this, in the ballot language are how, how it would fund schools and how, how things are really constrained from state budgets. So you've, you've been talking about it now for like two minutes and yeah. you haven't said what it is yet. And <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so well, it, it actually, actually, this is actually my, my difficulty with it is I start reading it 
And I'm like, okay, there's this thing and there's this thing. And like, it doesn't seem like a coherent ballot measure. It seems like it's kind of all over the map. Like it's going to reduce property taxes and increased overflow that they can keep based on Tabor. And I, I don't know, it feels like one of these things where it's like, I, I'm cynic, I just, it, it makes me cynical. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the people who put the ballot measure together, it makes it, but it feels like it's like some kind of crazy workaround Tabor somehow, because Tabor always ends up being at the middle of everything. And yeah, then, and I think, but it also feels like kind of, I, I keep thinking that we ought to be encouraging higher property taxes from a progressive taxation point of view. And it seems like we're still like saying, hey, we want to lower your property taxes. And I'm kind of like, what's that about? But, yeah, and I, I agree. And I, I guess I should have said this at the beginning. Like, I think this ballot issue is actually the hardest, most complex issue on the entire ballot. And that we're okay. starting with this one. So <laughs> okay. I think everything you're saying is yeah. true. And the, right. other, the other context of this, I'm just going to try to talk about like all the context for this. And you yeah. mentioned some of it. But um, this measure was put on the ballot by the state legislature, and there is a, a bill that was passed from the legislature that does outline all of these details. So really what we're reading- Is it bipartisan? Um, no. No, yeah, it's, okay, it's, so we, could, we have a supermajority in, in both houses, That right? is correct. So yeah, this was a, a bill put on by the Democratic legislature, yeah. essentially. But the bill does outline all of these details. So when you're reading it as a voter, you're just going by the handful of words that they put in the summary of this. Yeah. But the details are incredibly complicated, frankly. And this is one case where the Colorado Blue Book, which I'll definitely link in my voter guide, is extremely useful. It goes through all of these graphs of changes in revenue. So okay. property tax will slightly decrease, whereas funding for schools over the balance of this 10-year period that this bill would be in effect would be able to rise, you know, greater than Tabor. And Tabor, we haven't explained yet, is yeah. Tabor is in the Colorado Constitution, which is what it stands for is Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, is Tabor. And if you ever talk about state budgeting, Tabor is always Front a, a factor. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is that Tabor requires certain things about how the budget is set up. And also it requires that we vote on new taxes um, or even renewing existing taxes. Um, so it's, it's really influential in why we're having to vote on this at all. And I'd say there's some pieces of Tabor that are useful. And I think- I like the part about voting for new taxes. I, I'm not crazy about all the other stuff yeah, I yeah. hear about it in terms of constraints on what you can do and I, I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. I totally, I, I think like that's probably one, one of the benefits. And then there are a lot of negatives, I think, that just make operating a state budget very tricky. And yeah. actually we'll talk about this in the next, uh, the next Prop II, okay. uh, we'll save that conversation, but that is also about Tabor, largely. Okay. So going to my notes about Prop <laughs> HH, because sure, yeah. you really don't wanna go into voting on this measure without looking at your notes and without looking at something to really understand what it does, frankly. But I think some, some important pieces about this measure are up to, up to $20 million a year in rental assistance that would be statewide, which is not a lot of money, but I think in this environment, um, having another funding source to keep people housed is, is useful. Um, I mentioned the, the Tabor cap on education funding really relates to this measure in that um, this will increase the cap for education specifically. Um, so we'll reimburse um, property, reimburse local governments under this. And this is something that a lot of education advocates have been hoping for for a long time, is finding additional ways to use tax revenue to help fund our schools. Because funding for schools in Colorado is just, it's less than our comparable states. And we have very few mechanisms to actually change that. Yeah, we're, we're well into the 40s in terms of like funding per pupil. Or, right. You know, I, if, I'm, if I remember the, some of the rankings that I've seen in terms of how well Colorado does. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And he talks about some other pieces of it. Um, I think that the property tax refunds themselves are are a bit more progressive than just a straight cut. And why, when I say progressive, I mean in the sense of taxation, meaning if you have a, um, a property that's worth $100,000, for example, you'll get $167 back to 177 roughly, 
Versus if you have a property that's a million dollars, which is 10x, yeah. it's not 10x. It's yeah. about 208 to 400. Okay. So yeah. even if you make the argument, which I agree with, that property taxes should not decrease, um, the benefits are actually going more to people and businesses that are on the lower end of the property scale. So okay. if we're going to do this, that's actually a reasonable way to do it. You're for the measure, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we haven't yeah. gotten to that, but <laughs> that, is, that is true. And I'll talk about oh, some sorry. of the reasons okay. why. So there's a one-time piece of this as well, which is um, the whole mechanism that they're using to essentially pay for this property tax decrease and the additional funding for education and rental assistance, et cetera, is backfilling from what's typically known as a Tabor refund. And that Tabor refund is largely, if not exclusively, funded from income taxes that are that are essentially taken in above our the cap that Tabor sets. So yeah. the state is allowed to take in a certain amount of revenue and anything overage over that, um, the state is required to refund do something it. with it. Well, refund yeah. it, yes. Um, and so that's actually what, again, what the, the next measure is about because the state can't simply keep the money without citizens basically voting on it and saying that the state can yeah. use the money. And so for 2023, there is going to be a change as well on the Tabor refunds. So this, this is a piece that probably benefits low-income low folks the most, which is Tabor refunds are normally taking that whole pot of money for the state and they will give it back to people based on income back tax Proportionally to how much they gave right. in. Exactly, based on of, income, yeah. yeah. And so normally there, there are five brackets for that, meaning you know if you make, let's see, what are these? They're different um, income brackets. Yeah, essentially the, the midpoint is about $100,000 a year. So, but there are different brackets. So you would have, if you're making less than that, you would get you know a percentage of that, like as low as like 628 was, was looked at for like the lower end of the scale versus if you were making over $278,000 a year, you were projected to get $2,000 back. And so for the 2023 tax filing that will, people will be doing starting next year, if this passes, it will be just a flat return of tax money, which is, again, thinking about progressive policy, essentially taxing higher income earners more, not, not yeah. more rate, but just more money, and then redistributing that to lower income earners is a progressive policy. Yeah. And so yeah. that would go into effect just for uh, 2023 tax year, but still I think a benefit to people who are at the lower end of the income scale. And so you could certainly make a case, well, why don't we just do that all the time? Unfortunately, that's not <laughs> what was proposed, but I think overall, I think is a, a good progressive and policy. And these, these are like mechanisms that kick in under certain circumstances, right? Like there's not always a refund. That's because, correct. Yeah. And this is all going from the projection that the state is saying. And I think yeah. it's, it's a pretty sure bet that we will make these numbers for next yeah. year. But then this bill that we're talking about has a 10 year lifetime, meaning yeah. it sunsets after, after 10 years. And so as you go each year out into the future, the projections are of course, you know, more and more what potentially is the, variable. What is the sunset for? Is it, is it because you never know? Like maybe this, we find ourselves, you know, 10 years from now, we're like, oh, this, ne this never worked the way we thought it would. And now there's this big political battle or what's, what's the actual thinking of the, of the lawmakers who put the sunset in there? That's a good question. Um, I haven't researched enough to know like kind of what people have said about this. My presumption is that we all, you and I and a lot of people think that Colorado is in a housing crisis. We've had a lot of influx in people and we've had housing that hasn't kept up along with kind of the, the US housing crunch of housing prices generally rising all over the US and um, obviously interest rates going up. I think there's a lot of near-term crunch. We've had a lot of valuation increase. So we, so a lot of the benefits are really over the short term. It is driven by current market conditions, which may be completely different 10 years from now. Right. And so gotcha. I think that's a lot of it. I think like we're acknowledging too, that like this is taking revenue from income taxes, essentially to backfill property tax law. So 10 years from now, it may make more sense to let this lapse under the assumption that uh, valuations are not going to continue accelerating at this this pace that we've seen. So 
let's let this lapse or at that time maybe pass a different policy so that we are not locked into this forever. I, my presumption is that's largely where, where the idea is coming from. Well, I guess I can say I'm glad we're not using sales tax to backfill yeah. a property tax, you know, but, you know, income, I guess that's that's probably better than than uh, sales tax. But. Yeah. So I think like part of the reasons to talk about like why I support this or why this has been a pressing issue, I think as much challenge as I have with a property tax cut at all, I think acknowledging that the the very steep increases in property taxes is a is a hardship, both for homeowners and for renters who are, you know, those taxes are largely getting passed on to renters, as well as um, there's a constant threat at the state level of uh, Republicans and, and right right leaning groups, which are essentially pushing for a property tax cut without any of these benefits. Gotcha. Um, there's a measure already being prepared for 2024 that is just going to put essentially a, there's a couple different measures, but it, the one that would be the most damaging is a measure that's been proposed to limit property tax increases to, I think it's 3% a year, essentially. And this is very similar to what's been done in California with what's known as Prop 13, which essentially says your, the value of your house or your property can grow and grow and grow, but the tax burden will not. And so it creates all these perverse incentives of never growing, sell your house. growing the value of your property, never selling it because it's now an asset now that you own it. Yeah. And also every year not increasing additional amounts to our schools or our local governments or what, whatever is using that property valuation. And so I think part of the political motivation is to stem off a lot of this, like really, these really bad effects from property tax cuts that could be permanently in our constitution is essentially what that one, one of these versions of the measures wants to do. Wow. So HH kind of takes, perhaps takes some of the wind out of the sails of, of a move in that direction. Yeah, and I think, I think uses some of this money, I think in, in more progressive ways um, that I've outlined. So, yeah, great. you know, those are the reasons that, that I'm a yes on this. And I, I think you certainly could make this policy more progressive, but um, kind of given these various dynamics. In the world we live in, yeah. in, the, in the state of Colorado politics. It's, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. And so okay. that's, I'll be saying though yes on this. Cool. Thank you. Um, well, so let's see. How, how long did we spend on that first one? <laughs> I know they're not all. Uh, that was the most well, I, involved I, one. Yeah, I, I, I plan on not spending as much yeah, time on uh, any other ballot okay. issue. So, okay. yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, tell us about II. I think you know. I, I haven't. I haven't read anything about okay. this one. I don't even know what. This I think is. II is actually much uh, easier, um, frankly. So, <clears throat> so Prop II, the second measure on the ballot from the statewide perspective. And we talked about Tabor quite a bit on that first issue. And the Prop II is essentially all about Tabor. Um, and it's actually rehashing an issue that we all voted on in 2020. And that is, um, there was Proposition EE in uh, 2020, which <clears throat> raised a tax on cigarettes that was going to be used for, I think, primarily school funding. And in this- Early in education. This, in this case, preschool, yeah. Um, I don't remember, I'd have to look up exactly how much that passed by. I think it was fairly significant. I think there was a pretty broad agreement on it. All tax, all, all Prop II is saying is when we set these ballot measures, we say we expect to raise X amount of money by them. That's the estimate. And then the state is essentially held to that. Whatever they estimate in good faith that they will raise, let's say $5 million a year or whatever it ends up being, um, anything over than that, they actually have to return to the voters, the taxpayers, um, because of Tabor. And what Prop I is doing is essentially saying, what if we ask the voters, you know, if we can just keep any additional money raised by these taxes and not have to ask or whatnot about um, retaining that money for the purpose that we already told you and we all agreed that we should, we yeah. should do. And, and uh, in this case, if, if when the tax is returned, it goes, it doesn't go back to cigarette buyers, citizens. It's not, it's not part of like a table refund at the end of the year, is it? it, it ends right. Up it doesn't go, it doesn't go to the voters. In this case, it actually goes to the, uh, the wholesalers, distributors, nicotine, product distributors, et cetera, that are paying these taxes. So essentially, if you don't pass this, you're essentially saying, well, this tax that they all should be paying 
anything else actually is just going to go back to the the sellers of these products, yeah. which is not a very compelling. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not like our poster child for uh, you know a favorite favorite right. uh, you know business right. industry whatever. Right. Um, and and for me, it's, I have an emotional attachment to. Uh, a woman who uh, runs a, <laughs> a Head Start program here in Boulder County. So yeah, yeah. it's like, um, yeah, when I think about, you know, nicotine sales versus, uh, you know, the good people in her organization uh, uh, working so hard. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an easy one for me. But, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I don't know how much more there is to say about this one other than, like, you know, we gave the context for why it's happening and the reason it's happening with Tabor. Um, and I think, you know, from a policy perspective, it's pretty easy to figure out if people support this or not. And I imagine the vote margin on this is going to be even higher than Very the original right. tax, yeah. I would assume. So, yeah. So I'm definitely a yes on Prop II and cool. uh, don't really need to say much more about yeah, that it. Yeah, that one was much shorter. We are on a roll now. <laughs> All right. So the next issue on the ballot is um, going to Boulder County issues. Okay. And so just giving a general overview, there are two taxes proposed by Boulder County. These were put on the ballot by the commissioners, which is a three member board of uh, the governance of Boulder County. And these are both renewals of existing taxes. So from that perspective, typically a renewal of, of an existing tax is less controversial than passing another existing tax. So. Yeah. Overall, I think um, these issues are like good and important um, and likely to both pass. And I think that's that's a great thing. So I will just go into the first one. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first one is Boulder County ballot issue 1A. And this is um, an open space sales and use tax extension. And a lot of people know that um, not only the city of Boulder has an open space fund, but also the county of Boulder has an open space fund. Yep. and it's used for very similar purposes, um, acquiring, improving, managing, and maintaining open space lands and other space, open space property interests. That's right from the ballot language. And I think in general, I haven't done like an extensive analysis on where the county is on their kind of open space priorities. Most of these, um, when it comes to city of Boulder open space or county, they typically have a long range plan that they're using to guide how they're using this money um, for maintenance, but also future expansions or future projects or whatnot. And so um, one, one place that people often talk about open space at this point is like, these programs have been around for 30, 40, 50 plus years, depending on where you're looking at. And what is the kind of existing need for making these investments, how much of it is acquisition versus you know maintenance or or other uses and whatnot? And I think that's a that's a great question. Um, this money is typically less used for acquisition at this point, um, especially at the city level. But you know I think there are definitely as you do take more of the land and preserve it, that does typically mean that um, some of the existing parcels you know may have like increased in value or to if you want to get a very specific piece of land as opposed to general areas that are typically lower demand, you know, it does it does require funds to do that 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 may increase as the as the years increase. And so overall, um, I'm in favor of this measure. I think it's um, especially compared to the the issue we're going to talk about next, which is about affordable housing. Um, this tax, the sales tax is a point zero five percent versus the, the housing sales tax we'll be talking about is 0.185%. So this is actually only about a, a little more than a fourth of the money that we're going to be talking about for housing. And so I think certainly a lot of people that live in Boulder and Boulder County, um, we do really value the open space that we have and you know, thinking about opportunities to preserve that and, and better, you know, use I think, that. I mean, we think of it as a really well-run program, yeah. right? That's provided real value to the county right. and, and like um, I feel like you'd have to be really upset about what they're doing with these assets and the and the responsibility of the, the fiscal management and all of that to, to be like oh this is horrible and vote against it but but on the other hand um, there's still the contrarian in me is still kind of like aren't we um, using sales tax you know this regressive tax policy to 
to uh, in, in, you know improve people's you know the property owners' home values, and I I kind of wonder if there's ever going to be dialogue around kind of restructuring how we tax and who benefits from it. You know. Yeah, and I think it's a very fair question um, because I think you can make an argument easily. You know, we're both housing wonks. We uh, talk about like buying up all this land and preserving it has greatly increased property value. So why aren't we doing any property tax for this? I don't think there's yeah. a single amount of open space that's directly funded by property tax. And I yeah. think that's a very fair question. Um, I think the flip side on this is that when you think about the use and visitation, uh, in general, kind of like allure of open space, it's, it's not just for the people that live here. Yep. A lot of the statistics I see for visitors to Chautauqua, for example, uh, which is in the city of Boulder, typically runs about a third of the users are city of Boulder residents, about a third are county residents, Boulder County, and then about a third just come from all over the place, either other tourists. parts in the front range, yeah. tourists, people just visiting and whatnot. And I'm fine with taxing the crap out of tourists. <laughs> well, yeah, and most people <laughs> to, are, to some right? extent, you know? um, And so like, you know, I, I think if you were maybe thinking about a, a mastermind of this sort of thing that you would have part of the taxes for open space paid for by property owners and part of it paid by sales tax. And I think that'd be reasonable. I think it's almost entirely sales tax funded. So certainly a critique worth having. Um, I do think the benefits definitely outweigh the detractors here. But yes, if I, if I was trying to put in a policy in place, I would probably have some sort of a split. Cool. So yes, I, I support extending one, the one open a. space tax one yeah. a. We're we're supporting all the way down the line so far. As so far, yeah. The first three we've talked about. Yeah. H H I I. Yeah, and I think it is notable like these measures that have been put on. There's two ways to get something on the ballot, which is either by the legislative body or by a citizen initiative. And yeah. Colorado is pretty good about putting things on at all levels of the ballot. And so these have all been put on by a legislative body. So, okay. so yeah, the, uh, the next issue on the ballot is Boulder County, County ballot issue 1B, which is the affordable and attainable sales and use tax. And so one thing that I, I wanna, that is still a, a work item for me, which is about the context of this, is that my understanding is that this is a renewal of a tax that was originally put in place uh, for flood recovery in Boulder County, um, because 10 years ago, we had a historic rain event and flooding event, which at the time people said was so extensive that it's gonna take us five or 10 years to, to fully recover from this, meaning yeah. all the damage to roads and trails and infrastructure and, and all of that sort of thing. <clears throat> and so I think that the genesis of this, of this tax and renewing this tax is really around like this tax was set to expire. Can't remember if it's set to expire this year or next year, I think it's this year. And so essentially, what are the critical needs in Boulder County? I, I gave a lot of credit to our county commissioners for identifying as this a, as a key funding need, which is essentially what this would be used for, just reading from the, the measure as well, funding affordable and attainable housing related support services, um, including but not limited to development, operation, acquisition, pr preservation, renovation, maintenance, and construction of for sale and rental homes for low and moderate incomes and the local workforce, um, supportive housing, et cetera. And I think like, I'm, I'm really excited that this is uh, being proposed. I, my understanding is that this is the first affordable housing funding that the county ha has ever uh, asked okay. or put into place. And so, again, thinking about the context of this, um, the um, who this money would be going to essentially, it, it says grants to housing authorities, nonprofit affordable housing providers, and local municipalities. And those are really the entities that are in charge of building or helping the production of affordable housing in our communities. And the context of that is like the city of Boulder has a, a pretty useful and substantial affordable housing fund. And that's largely generated by new developments, meaning if you want to build, you know, 100 units of housing, we say that at least 25% of that has to be permanently affordable. And then the question is, what happens next? So either a developer builds that on site, which doesn't a happen fourth, very a often. A fourth of the homes are affordable at yeah. the site. 
Right. Which that's that's great if it happens, but um, it never does. <laughs> not no, never, I mean, but usually, yeah. usually the rent, not. The rentals there's a there's a fair bit. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. As far as for sale housing, it's it's definitely not as much. And then the question is, okay, so let's say you're a, de- a developer and you decide not to build those units on site, but you pay 25% in. And for a typical housing developments builder, that could be hundreds of thousand dollars into the millions of dollars that is set aside specifically for affordable housing. And so the really great thing about this ballot measure is you take that money that's paid in by the city of Boulder, and then you think about how can the city best get the most number of housing units out of this? And this measure, if it goes into place, uh, ballot measure 1B, as well as a, a measure at the statewide level last year, Prop 123. Mm-hmm. So one fund from the state and then one potentially from the county, which can be used to match funds or provide funding for local governments to essentially take these, these sets of money and kind of get a multiplier effect on how much affordable housing they can build. And so I, I recently read in a, a local newspaper article that said when cash is paid in lieu of building affordable housing that we typically get somewhere between two and three times the affordable housing built by matching it with these state grants federal or LITEC. or yeah, LITEC, which is at the federal level. And now we're gonna have a, potentially an additional way that, that we can match funds at the county level. There's a whole you know set of challenges with building affordable housing that relate to zoning and and land use and all that and those are things that we continue to work on but like providing these mechanisms to actually build the housing through a a funding mechanism having funding there is is huge so yes then the next piece is how can we change our zoning so that when we have the money we can actually get the most out of it you know build um you know more transit friendly less car heavy type of development so i see this as kind of like part and parcel um what's really important to help us get out of this affordable housing crisis. Awesome, so you said it was 0.18%. Um, I, I don't know what that translates into millions of dollars of, of per year. Do you, does, does it say what the expected um, revenue is for that? You know, it actually doesn't. And oftentimes it will say it in the measure text itself. And so that's a research okay. item for me. Right. Um, at the county level, I would have to guess that it's going to be in the tens of millions of dollars a year at the county level, just okay. off the cuff. Yeah. So I'll, I'll have an exact answer yeah, for sure, you in my, my voter guide. I was but, just curious, uh, you had the notes in front of you, yeah, so yeah. I maybe you had it. All right, so we did the two state and the two county, and now we're on to our three, uh, we have a, a, a ballot measure and two ballot questions. Do you know the difference between a measure and a question? Well, yeah, typically they're referred to as ballot issue or ballot question. Oh, sorry, yeah, um, ballot issue or question. Yeah, not measure. Yeah, and I, I can't but, recall. Okay. It, it's no. actually not obvious. I was wondering if it was related to whether or not it's a Tabor, but I don't think that's the case either. Um, oh, interesting. Why don't we, we'll keep yeah. going though. Yeah, um, sure, for sure. Okay, so um, City of Boulder ballot issue 2A. Um, this one is a sales use and tax extension. And the history of this one is that there was a current um, funding mechanism for the city of Boulder that goes in the general fund to provide funding for uh, various services. Um, I'll just list some things. Fire, emergency response, public safety, human services, homelessness, parks, etc. which is not the only funding mechanism, but this is essentially one of them. And this, this measure is due to expire in 2024. And another thing that happened in this past year is that there is a, a group of people ha- who have been working for many years to try to provide additional funding for the arts specifically. And arts funding in the city of Boulder has historically been very low. You know, I think we have a lot of natural beauty. We spend a lot of money on open space and various other things, but arts has not typically been at the highest level of the list. And so this group of folks essentially said, well, this tax renewal is coming up. Why don't we put a measure on the ballot to take this tax renewal that the city is using and direct it solely to the arts. And the total amount of money that this entire tax would generate is about $7 million. And so that would essentially, if, if that measure had just gone through fully, 
then the city would have had to reduce their budgets by roughly $7 million a year for those other things I mentioned, which are critical yeah. services, and then dedicate this solely to the arts. And so city council, seeing this kind of coming head on, decided you know, they had several options that they, they could go forth here. The city could so go- So this measure that you're talking, this ish ballot issue is a direct response to the next one we're about to talk about? Or the, well, I mean, there's actually there's... only one measure on the ballot, but I'll, okay. I'll okay. talk about oh, okay. that. So. So the, the city council basically had three paths that they could have taken. They could have said, okay, arts group, um, you can have your measure on the ballot. We'll have our measure on the ballot. We'll basically be fighting over this money. And the way that the city charter handles this is that because they are- um, Conflicting. Because they are conflicting, whichever one got more votes in, oh, in favor, <laughs> or assuming they both passed, yeah, okay. uh, whichever one got more votes in favor, then that would be the one that would prevail. Yeah. And so obviously this is sets up like this very risky proposition for well, yeah. both sides, right? Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that wasn't something that anyone wanted. So another option that could have happened earlier this year is the, the arts group could have said, well, let's not try to, um, try to go after this existing money, let's pass a new tax just for the arts. But obviously they didn't make that choice. They, I think they maybe wanted to drive towards an outcome like this. The reason that a group might not want to do that is then it's the whole idea of passing a new tax versus renewing an existing tax. And people are so much more willing to renew an existing tax than pass a new tax. They didn't want to take that route. And so given that we're in this potential head-to-head -head scenario, the city council negotiated with this group and determined that a compromise is essentially the best path forward. Okay. And of course there are trade-offs for this. That means less, less potential money going to the arts and also the city essentially has to change their budgeting to have a reduction in future years. So they're taking that $7 million and kind of splitting it down the middle, is that? Half of it to the arts, half of it to the what it was going to before. Is that? I think that's that's generally true. Um, there are a few more details that I want to research exactly because I think it is important to note that starting since 2015, the city of Boulder has been increasing the arts spending in their budget. So mm -hmm. there's already a line item. I don't remember exactly. It's maybe one or one and a half million dollars, just off the okay. top of my head, that currently goes to the arts, and so. What may happen is that with this new dedicated tax that would go straight to the arts, that that existing funding may cool. be reduced. But I know that some people didn't want that, so I need to do a little more research to see exactly okay. how that would play in. But I think there's also been a, a discussion about do we want dedicated taxes or do we prefer not to have dedicated taxes? And I think, I think there's a good argument to be made that dedicated taxes are not ideal because we want to adjust to the priorities as they happen. Like if we have things that happen in our economy or, or shifts in the city where we need to shift money in the general fund from one thing to another, that a dedicated tax is not ideal. Um, flip side of course is that, <clears throat> well, without a dedicated tax for the arts, you can just cut the arts, cut it and keep cutting it until you, know, you don't have yeah. a significant amount of money going to it. Um, but then, of course, the question is like, yeah, well, are, where else are you going to cut? And we always have to make these choices. So I think that's kind of the full context of like where this measure came from and what it would do, essentially. The actual art spending would be extremely similar to how we do this currently, which is largely grant-based, meaning uh, groups or individuals can apply for funding. Uh, and it's a, kind of a... Here's this pot of money. Here's what we're doing for grants this year. It's kind of like an, they do like a request for proposals or something. Right, like exactly. And so, you know, that would just be continued and the, the funding for those, that system would be increased. I, I think this is a, a reasonable compromise. And going back to the sales tax versus property tax idea, I, I also agree that I would like to see additional funding for the city be more property tax based, which is more stable. It's typically more progressive than sales taxes. And you can make the case that actually having sales tax to fund the arts is reasonable because you're going to potentially draw people into our community that would not otherwise be coming to our community. And that there's kind of a multiplier effect in these taxes when you 
put it into the economy through like additional productions or whatnot, then that tends to actually come back to the city through increased spending, which is again taxed at a low rate and comes back into the city coffers. So I just I just had a brainstorm. I, something one of my biggest complaints about the Safeway here is we're, we're at uh, Park East Park, so there's a there's a Safeway less than half a mile from here. And uh, every now and then, I don't know if you've ever been over there when there's a, a like a musician playing in the parking lot. There's there's no place for them to stand, you know. <laughs> yeah, and for I sure. wonder. It seems like a, a great grant proposal that I would love to put a rubber stamp on would be like, hey, let's make a little space here for these wonderful musicians to come uh, actually have uh, be welcome and, and yeah. to have a place to stand and and perform. Yeah, Anyways. for sure. <laughs> I mean. I, I've got all kinds of ideas of how to change the asphalt that's, that sits fallow over there year after year. But yeah, anyways. just got to convince the property owner to do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, given, given where this measure stands, like, I think my personal preference would have been uh, a slight increase in sales tax to pay for this or a compromise, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. not the direction that um, the council went with this. But Given that, I, I think this is a reasonable compromise. I, I personally think the additional art spending is is important for Boulder, um, especially as, as it relates to diversity and bringing bringing more people to Boulder that um, you know wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. What else we got left? We got two more um, ballot questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, city of Boulder ballot question two B. Out of all the things on the city ballot, this one is probably talked about the least because it's perhaps the most boring. The reason is because it says the description. Elections, administrative, charter, cleanup. Okay, yeah. And um, like... honestly, this is one of those things where you read it and it sounds like it's an administrative thing. It, it sounds like, well, why don't they just <laughs> do this? And the reason this has to be put to the voters is that anything related to election law has to be passed by the voters. It, it's good that our city officials can't change election laws and this is just one of those things that well, they have to ask Well, you can imagine us. if they didn't have to, it wouldn't be so boring. Right. Right. They, they might be like, hey, let's do something. We can do whatever we want. So let's do what we want to. Right. And so to just give a brief description of what these are, it's related to um, citizen petitions. And, um, you know, as oh. someone involved in <laughs> Veterans Are for People and, uh -huh. and you as well, yeah, right. like this, this actually this, matters. This actually, you know, hits home to me because it relates to the amount of time before a um, so when, when you determine when a petition is due to go on the ballot for any particular year. So yeah. like the election this year is November 7th. Essentially what the charter currently says is if you want to submit something for the ballot this year as a citizen petition, you have to submit it no later than 150 days before. Yeah. And right now that's about June 5th, roughly. And so the reason that's covered under election law is because you need to have strict you know, guidelines and strict, strict laws about saying when these things are due so that there's no question about whether or not um, groups make the threshold. heaven forbid you would show up with your, with your 3,000 uh, signatures. Right, it's like- <laughs> at, the, at the deadline you were told. Putting hundreds of hours into work to get something on a ballot and, and being told that no, you can't. Yeah, um, yeah look at Bedrooms Are For People in 2020. This is related to exactly yeah. this issue. Um, but really what the city is asking for is just a 10-day extension. They want 10 more days to process the ballots. They want um, some changes into the exact rules around this, remove the requirement that signer, signers to petitions appear personally before the clerk. You know, we can do these things more digitally these days. Um, clarify the state law. State law governs for process for charter amendments. That's actually exactly what Bedrooms Over People was suing over yeah. in 2020. Um, because we said that the city law should apply and the city was saying the state law should apply and it simply wasn't clear. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really useful. I'll write about that more <laughs> when I write this up. Oh, man. Um, overall, I think this is a pretty benign change and um, it's, it's reasonable for the city to want to do this. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't put any additional constraints really on the citizens because the actual amount of days you have to collect signatures uh, to get something on the ballot is the same. It's 180. So what this means is if you're trying to get something on the ballot, you just need to start 10 days earlier. Yeah. So yeah. again, not a not a significant change. Um, can I just ask a fairly related question? Yeah. How, how's the electronic petition system going? Um, oh, you don't want to ask me that question okay. now. <laughs> <laughs> like no time for that now. It's a separate Yeah, I mean, that's, 
that's a whole separate ball of wax. Um, you know, the, not I, well is kind of what I'd I read into your initial. It's not great. Um, yeah. The biggest change that they made was to allow both online signatures and paper signatures, okay. which I think in an ideal world, more people would use the online system. But, yeah. you know, as long as there's incentives to keep improving the online system, you know, hopefully we can actually get it to a place where it's the standard. Yeah. But, um, you know, the next issue we're going to talk about, the safe zones measure, um, I was tracking their petition progress quite a bit. And I think they only got about 10% of their signatures online and the rest they got on paper. So yeah. if you just hear that statistic, yeah. you'd say, well, that's not going that great. They should have gotten way more signatures online, right? But yeah, that's super easy. So anyway, I'm, I'm a yes on uh, City of Boulder ballot question 2B. Okay, I am too. So, so it's... Um, we have one more ballot issue. So I think we, you know, here's the deal. I mean, I've interviewed- I'm wondering if we can I've talk about- I've interviewed never, nearly every candidate. Yeah. So like people listening to the podcast, yeah, they yeah. can- And then we also interviewed Katie and, and Doug uh -huh. uh, for uh, Safe Zones, uh, Solutions, not Safe Zones. And then Terry Bernchich was also on the podcast. But I mean, I'm, I'm still happy to like do a quick touch on that I think we should one. talk about Safe Zones. Um, yeah. Okay, so City of Boulder ballot issue 302. Um, so we said that the other two City of Boulder measures, those are both put on by the City Council. Um, they essentially had to have a majority of people on Council to vote in favor. Those are on the ballot. Um, safe Zones is a citizen position, and this is one that was put on by a group of people that was essentially, they started on this in March, I think, and by, by June they got the signatures that they needed and this is on the ballot. And what this does, it's, it's called Safe Zones for Kids, and it's trying to put a policy in place on how the city of Boulder enforces their camping ban around uh, unhoused people or people you know, sleeping in public space. And so it's written to say essentially that, you know, prioritizing the removal of prohibited items such as tents, um, temporary structures or propane tanks. And it says within 500 feet of the school or 50 feet of a multi-use path or sidewalk. Um, and I think the, the big challenge with this for me is that I really have a fundamental issue with enforcing bans that essentially are to police homelessness on people when they don't have a sufficient place to go. And full disclosure, I'm part of the city of Boulder, the lawsuit against the city of Boulder by uh, the ACLU is essentially arguing this exact same thing. Yeah. And what I think this, this policy does is really, it really takes what is largely current policy where the, the police is doing their own prioritizations and it's, it's putting some extra restrictions on it. It's actually putting it into the law as opposed to being a policy that's just determined internally. Yeah. And I, I just simply, I don't see a benefit in this. And you can make an argument about whether or not the current policy is working or useful or whatnot. But essentially, it's it's trying to hold the city to this to these specifications, and it's putting it in law, which then essentially makes it difficult for the council to change, and also could really um, inspire lawsuits saying, "Well, the city is not adequately doing their job." Essentially, um, there's no signage near my sidewalk. <laughs> right. I mean, and and the idea that they put within 50 feet of any multi-use path or sidewalk is just. It's just baffling to me why why that should make sense as something that's... Yeah, for me, I was kind of like, I was wanting to hear out the arguments to kind of, you know, and there's there's a lot, there's so much to be said about homelessness and about how to, how to help people and what we should be doing as a city. And then I got like reading the ballot language and I was like, this is so, to me, it's really absurd if the whole 50 feet from a sidewalk, I have a sidewalk in my in front of my house, you know, right. owned, owned by the city. Um, and so it's like, I, that's kind of just like, for me, that's where my brain just sort of shut off. It's like, I, I'll, anything other d debate about it is sort of, it's important that we have healthy dialogue about the, these, what, what should be done. But like in terms of this ballot measure, like for me, it's like, uh, all right, I, I don't need to talk about it anymore. Yeah, and <laughs> but, I, I think that's the helpful context for people is that, that this was put on the ballot essentially in my view, it is, it is using kids fully as a political issue to get a conservative council elected. Yeah. And that's, I think it's really inappropriate. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do anything positive. Like if this were to pass, if anything, yeah. it just makes it 
more constrictive, more difficult to actually, you know, just let the police do their job. You know, that's what yeah. the current policy is. And obviously we can talk about improving policy or changing policy, but that's not even what this does. It just locks in current policy even further. Yeah. And so this is a pretty easy no vote for me, um, but it's gonna be contentious. Yeah, we haven't done any real polling to know how these things, but actually this, this brings up, um, do you have anything else to say about safe zones? Um, I, I, I'm voting no. Yeah. I, I think that the thing is like, it sounds very reasonable, but I, I think like this is part of the reason that I think voter guides are helpful to actually, you know, show yeah. like write-ups about like why a certain policy is just not not going to be helpful for us. Yeah. So, yeah. The barely related point is, that I was going to make is that one of the things, one of the reasons that the city um, elections are so fun and exciting and anxiety-inducing is that we don't do any polling. We have no idea what's going to pass and what's not going to. I mean, some of the tax renewal stuff ends up winning by a landslide if you look at previous elections, but like. Um, and we can make educated guesses about which candidates have a chance, but um, there's always surprises and we don't really know until the votes are counted. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty entertaining as far as you know, television goes. I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the best resources are really like, like a whole separate thing that I do is like analyzing of elections and what happened. And, um, I used to put more of that on my blog, actually, at the same place that I, that I post the voter guides. But it's interesting because, like, there's always this trade-off of, like, well, political strategy versus, you know, fully, like, explaining, like, what happened. But um, typically in these, these kind of elections, the best indicator are just data from other elections, related issues, um, voting patterns. And, yeah, it's almost never polling, especially about candidates. Like, no one no one really polls candidates in these local elections because most people don't even know who they are until they get their ballot and then they look them up. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, totally. Well, Eric, thanks so much for uh, making time for this and detailing you, man, uh, it's really like impressive how you can answer specific questions and, and understand the issues really well. So thank, thank you. you for thank you for making time. And, Absolutely. Uh, and. Uh, I look forward to um, to seeing the voter guide when it comes out, and and uh, I'll be forwarding it to my you know friends and neighbors. So. Well, I really appreciate that. Yep. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Philip. Gonna find me a residential pedestrian district where I can gracefully grow older. Gonna spend my remaining years sharing both. Thank you for listening to Sharing Boulder. Please support the podcast by sharing it with your friends and neighbors. You can contact me at linktree slash philipogren, which you can find by visiting sharingboulder.us, where you can also find show notes and previous episodes. This episode of Sharing Boulder was produced by Philip Ogren and edited by Katie Avery. The music was created by Nathaniel Ogren and Sack Lunch. Keep sharing, Boulder. <laughs>